0: Exactly right. It is a quandary, I mean, a massive one. Absolutely right. There's many times these things pull in very opposite direction. Again, you know, in my expertise in waste and, and these topics, like one of the interesting things we notice is people try to make packaging more efficient and more cheaper, which they, you could argue sustainably is less material use. It actually explodes the use of that package even more. So you get way more volume and that new lighter package that is more complicated becomes significantly less recyclable, making it actually a much bigger waste issue. And this is one of those very challenging dynamics. in, uh, I think any sort of sustainability question is what happens when you create that breakthrough.
1: Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshua.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Tom Zaki has been working on waste since his undergrad days at Princeton in 2002. Then, I suddenly heard about him from many sources in the past few months, never having heard about him before. His company, TerraCycle, recycles waste that others don't. But his new company, Loop, got attention at Davos recently and support from many companies whose business plans depend on producing waste within an economic model that promotes growth. It's a dangerous place to be. He also published a book, The Future of Packaging, co-authored by top executives from these waste and growth places. I wrote more notes from that book to prepare for my conversation with him than any other book, including the McDonald's one. The book never mentioned reducing consumption, twisting, as I saw it, the idea to reduce material per package, which is not the same as reducing overall number of packages, overall waste. Almost no one gets the subtle but critical distinction between efficiency and total waste. Our polluted world is the result of centuries of increasing efficiency and total waste. Nearly every initiative that I see today extends that trend, missing that efficiency in a polluting system leads to more efficient pollution. His book did talk about responsibility, the counter to externalizing costs. So the book missed what I consider the most important part of handling waste, which is reducing supply and demand, but got responsibility. So I wondered if he was serious or yet another person confusing feeling like you're reducing waste while increasing it, the way the Watt steam engine did, Uber does, widening roads does and LED bulbs are track track to, or if he was really onto something. You'll hear from this conversation that, as best I can tell, he understands the systemic issues and the need for systemic change. For the rest, listen. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Tom Zaki. Tom, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And I was just saying before we started recording, you're, I'm reading The Future of Packaging, right and on. I've been watching videos about Loop, and, which has just come out. Yep. And actually, a lot of people have been sending me stuff related to that, especially, I guess, since uh, Davos. That's right. So I'm really glad to meet you. And I was just saying, I also really hope to meet you in person because your stuff goes into a lot more depth than most people. And I think most people just kind of hope other people figure this stuff out. Well, I think that's one of the
0: challenges in this particular uh, sort of ecosystem. You know, I mean, I'm focused very much on waste, is that for how big of a topic it is, it is sorely under researched, you know, uh, very little academic information available on it. I mean, there's no university class on waste, yet everything in the world one day ends up as garbage, which is sort of an odd quandary, I would say.
1: Yeah, it's, and it's a very fascinating thing. It's, it's both exciting and interesting for a lot of people, and also a big, they are just, why can't I just throw it all in one place? Right. And totally. well, I'm doing my part. If they're not doing their part, you know, it's so easy. People like to, well, on the one hand, I think people like to not worry about stuff. On the other hand, the people who do start making it their business, love it. Right. I don't mean, well, business like you, but also like zero waste people and people like when you reduce waste, it, like it feels really good
0: it does it's very purposeful you know that's one of the things i love about my job is that it really the uh, a huge amount of the uh, reward is not just monetary but also very purpose driven and that of course you know is a wonderful thing to have to wake up to every morning
1: and it's something missing i think in, there's here's something i point out to people if you tell someone here's one little thing that you can do yeah it, it implies that they don't want to do it yes. you, know, you might get compliance in the moment but you might also reinforce a belief that like well that's just hard I, I think you're absolutely
0: right. And I think this is one of the, the biggest challenges in the environmental movement overall is that it's many times sacrifice-based. And I think, you know, people struggle with that. And uh, it's also very hard to create a habit on uh, on that type of decision. You know, I think that the more that the movement and its ideas can be framed in this is a better life. Uh, you can live better. It's not. It's the opposite of sacrifice. That's what's going to get people to gravitate towards it. And I think that's very important for you know the uh, folks who are trying to develop environmental, social practices or, or systems, whatever they may be, to really center on that and really focus on people just want everything easier, cheaper, better.
1: Yeah, you sound like me because it's really about a systems perspective based on. Values that are driving the system, and if you don't work on those things, you're liable to get a system that's just like we have now, but maybe more efficient. You got it exactly right. Couldn't agree with you more. Well, good talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so that's one of the big challenges. Is that to me? I see this, this the values driving. I mean, the system. What do I mean by the system? It's kind of hard to say, like the global economic system. But let's kind of say that we know what we mean by system it feels yeah. to me like the values driving it are among them are growth and yep. externalizing costs and yes i feel like yeah, it's, it's
0: profit i mean i mean you're really you know grow it's profit and growing the profit right is another way to say
1: a synonym to what you just said yeah and that if we have a system just like that i think pollution is an, an inevitable outcome of that absolutely Absolutely,
0: and, and, Yeah, and a lot of other destruction as well. You know, uh, all sorts of strains on the environment if you keep externalizing. So what, what are the alternatives? You know, it, it's a really interesting question. So, you know, what everyone will say is how do we embed the externalities? You know, true cost accounting, right? People should really have to pay in the product for all of its externality. That's like sort of the dream. The question is, okay, if that's the goal, how do we get there in the reality of uh, today? So I'll give a couple of quick examples, all within waste, but at least uh, hopefully they're illustrative to how at TerraCycle we try to do this in a voluntary fashion. So let's just take a waste for example. You know, uh, our first division at our company really revolves around how do we make things that are not recyclable, recyclable? Now, before I just go into how we do it, I think it's always important to understand why something exists. So why is something recyclable and why is something else not recyclable? And- Many people think that it has to do with the technical capability of the waste. In other words, things that are recyclable are easy to recycle for recyclers and things that are not recyclable are not recyclable because they're hard technically for a recycler to recycle. And in fact, that's not the issue. The issue is entirely economics. Recyclers are urban miners, you know, so they will mine out of garbage what they can mine at a profit and leave everything else to the cheapest way to destroy it. That typically becomes landfilling or burning or burying, landfilling or incineration. And so it's all about economics. And so the way we make, for example, dirty diapers recyclable in Holland, which we just launched with Pampers there, or you know, toothbrushes with Colgate, or you name it, is we work with those companies, your Pampers and Colgate's of the world, to offset the economic difference on what it uh, actually costs to collect a toothbrush or a diaper, what it actually costs to process minus... What we can actually make by selling the waste, and they solve for that delta. Now you can't just go to a company you know this goes to that earlier point and be like, well, just take responsibility and pay the bill, you know internalize that externality a way better way and a way more effective way to frame it, and it, what, what generates success is to say, by recycling you know toothbrushes, Colgate, you're going to get more people to love your brand, and when people are choosing their toothbrush, they're going to choose your brand instead of someone else's. And that market share shift makes it a profit center for them to make their waste recyclable. And voila, they are now voluntarily internalizing that externality. And that's sort of the unlocking mechanism, if you will, for our entire business unit on, uh, that has to do with that topic. It's So there's one. I'll give you just one other example to give you a contrast on this for a moment. With uh, a new division we launched just a month ago, the one you mentioned about Davos, uh, called LOOP which is all about moving packaging from being single use and owned by the consumer to effectively multi use or reusable and owned by the manufacturer effectively eliminating the idea of waste that's again sort of you know the the macro reason we created it the key thing that the that the manufacturer internalizes there is they own the package throughout and the beauty of that being internalized you know, obviously from a sustainability point of view is that it encourages reuse instead of single use, which is amazing from an eco point of view, but forget that for a moment, look at it just from an economics point of view. And the benefit to them is that that package as an asset means that the longer they make it last, the cheaper financially it becomes for them because you know the total cost of the package divided by the total number of possible uses. Uh, so they're actually motivated by having internalized that Uh, to make it way better for uh, the environment uh, and sustainability. And this, I think, is sort of the interesting unlocking mechanisms of how do we live that dream of having everything be really fully accounted properly. So I
1: heard a lot in there. And let me see if I can... I I was trying to break it down, or not break it down, but elevate it up to the the systemic level. And so, for example, when you said that with recycling, it's an economic issue, not Mm -hmm. necessarily a technical issue, that, to me, says it's really values. I mean, economics is, feels to me like, what's the value of something? Mm-hmm. And, and if we look at it only from a technical perspective, we miss this values perspective. And I think that that's what really governs what gets recycled or not. And in terms of loop, what I feel like, to me, the opposite of external, externalizing costs is taking responsibility. And it feels like you're saying we're enabling companies to take responsibility. And that's a systemic change. We, the unlocking... To me, in my language, i sorry if I'm making it sound, makes it easier for me to think this way. I'm not sure yeah. if it makes it harder for you to think this way, but are you saying we're getting companies to take responsibility for their waste or we're enabling them to? Yeah, I would frame it in just one different way, uh-huh.
0: which is it's not about, necess- it's the wording. It's very specific and important. It's not about enabling them to take responsibility because that sort of seems like here is a voluntary tax. Right, that you may pay to be a better citizen. It's a little bit more that by um, we are showing them that by taking responsibility, they will win at what they care about the most, which is sell more stuff.
1: So it's making an again an economic case or a, a values-based case that if you do this, you will what they want to do. They want to deliver goods to the product to the consumer at a price that's competitive and so forth. Yeah, but let's be super clear. What do they really want is to be more
0: profitable, right? Everything else is a, is, a, is a sub-point of being more profitable. And how do you be more profitable in a world like toothbrushes, where no one's going to buy more toothbrushes, is where they buy your brush instead of someone else's. And that is the key thing to frame it in. And magic happens from there. Well, uh, <laughs> magic happens from there. I'm like, yes. and yeah. Well, the magic is that they start taking responsibility uh, you know, over these topics because it shows them that it's good business.
1: Okay. So the magic is that, is that there's less waste going into the landfills. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I guess happier exactly. consumers, consumers who feel better about what they're buying and, and like that brand more because they're not just doing this, but they're letting the consumer know that they're doing this so the consumer can make an educated choice. Exactly. The consumer's like, oh, Thank you for relieving me of trying to figure out what to do with all that stuff. Yes,
0: yes, exactly. And the consumer wants a better planet too. I mean, everyone's aligned on that.
1: So now I have a couple challenging some things that come up for me. There's there's one big pattern, there's a big difference I see between efficiency and lowering total waste. And mm. yes. one of the main pictures that I think of is, is the the Watt steam engine. You know, one of the big, not the only thing, but one of the big things that started the Industrial Revolution and it yep. wasn't the most efficient it wasn't the first steam engine but it was significantly more efficient than any before and everyone expected more efficient we should use less coal and we ended up using more coal because once the price once it became more efficient people used things people used engines for things that they never did before and they used them more yes and that pattern i see over and over again with leds it's happening with with uber and congestion and oftentimes people look at the place where the waste happens and they say, okay, we'll make this more efficient. But if you make it cheaper, then you have to look at the, the demand curve and what new things are you enabling if something's cheaper. And it seems historically that we keep using things for more purposes and then using them more, even though the, the place where we wanted to make it more efficient is more efficient. And so this pattern keeps happening over and over again. And I think we keep thinking we're moving in a direction that, we, that helps reduces waste, but the net effect keep, seems to be the world that we live in of more efficient than ever and more waste than ever.
0: Exactly right. I mean, it is a quandary, uh, I mean, a massive one. You are absolutely right. And there's many times these things go pull in, in, in very opposite directions. You know, if we, again, you know, in my expertise in waste and, and these topics, like what, what are the, you know, sort of interesting things we notice is, is um, you know, so for example, as people try to make packaging more efficient and more you know, cheaper, which they you could argue sustainably is less material use, it actually explodes the use of that package even more. So you get way more volume, and that new lighter package that is more complicated becomes significantly less recyclable, making it actually a much bigger waste issue. And this is one of those sort of very challenging dynamics in, uh, I think, any sort of sustainability uh, type
1: question is, you know, what happens when you create that breakthrough? And by the way, I have to say that the book of yours, The Future of Packaging, goes into all this detail. And so people who are interested in this, this is one of the sources that I've come across that like, has useful information. It's easy to read. The people, I have to digress here for a second. How do yeah. you get all these people involved with it at such high levels? Because these are the people that I'm looking to work with myself. And I'm just like, wow, you really got some great people working on this.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. The, uh, so each, each chapter, you know, Future of Packaging is, uh, has a co-author on it. Um, so it's not just my opinion. It's an opinion of uh, quite an amazing group of experts uh, uh, in the field. And, you know, these are folks that I've uh, gotten to know over the past 16 years of building TerraCycle around the world. And, uh, you know, it's just a great honor to be associated with them. And they all, you know, they all had a lot of passion for this book because they all felt like people who are trying to do the right thing really trying to take the right sustainable steps, you know, and, and, and to change their organizations or to change as individuals may not understand what's really happening and may be trying to do the right thing and actually doing the wrong thing in the process, which is really sad and
1: shouldn't happen. I see that happening all over the place because here's a criticism I have. Yeah. And uh, I mean it with the best intent of, yeah. of helping the causes we share is that there's very little on reducing in there. And most of the people that you have when they say reduce, they're talking about using less material and packaging, but not reducing packaging or reducing consumption. Yeah. And
0: you are precisely correct. I just really want to echo, you are absolutely right, 100 percent right. You know, and, and just to really shout out to that, it's reduce by not reducing weight, but buying less stuff, just reducing overall purchase is the answer to solving effectively almost every environmental issue out there that one cares about. It doesn't matter what the issue is, if it's you know, animal welfare, if it's, you know, species reduction, if it's global warming, you know, forestry reduction, uh, you know, air quality, water quality, you name the issue, it's all linked to consuming stuff. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think that is absolutely the most important uh, answer. And you pick up on a really important insight. Uh, you know, in, in the book I wrote before, Out Smart Waste, I was able to, you know, talk about it a bit more because that was only me writing it. But what you may notice is a lot of the co-authors in Future of Packaging are folks who work at companies whose Pepsi, Procter & Gamble, companies. Unilever. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And they cannot, in their corporate setting, put out the message of buy less. It, yeah, it, 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 the book wouldn't have been published. And so that is incredibly insightful, incredibly important. I just want to really echo that that is the capital T answer is don't buy. It's not about buying better. It's about don't buy. Then if you really have to buy, buy better. But Honor the don't buy.
1: I hope I bring this up. I didn't mess up your relationships with these companies.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I get to say it. You know, it's it's just hard, sometimes hard, hard. And this is the challenge of, you know, I think the issue here is there. You know, I really believe foundationally that you know people are generally good people. Um, you know, I, I've usually met no matter what the company they work with, whether it's big tobacco, big pharma, big food. You know, any of these organizations, and we partner with all of those. Um, the people inside these companies are pretty awesome people, good people. The problem is the, you know, KPI or key performance indicators that they're measured against, get their bonuses on, get promoted, uh, or demoted, you know, the, that ecosystem sets them up to make it very difficult to make amazing decisions all the time.
1: Yeah. Because that it's almost always driven by growth. And, and if you don't honor that you
0: get fired and someone else comes in who does. Yeah. So changing that, that's really hard
1: to change. Gee,
0: like systemic it is, it is. so values. the only way to change it, I think, in the short term, is p- accept it and play into it. And once you've been able to do that, then there may be, you know, opportunities to wiggle. So let me give you an example of this, right? So with Loop, this reuse platform, the way we convince our partners to get in is this is just good business, right? You can solve a massive sustainability issue, and you can also upgrade, you know, the experience of products to a whole new level for consumers. I mean, what a win, right? that once they're in, are underneath nudging, for example, is we try to then nudge them into say, okay, now that you're in loop, you know, we think you may want to go more with your vegan flavors than your non-vegan flavors. So a good example, pragmatically, of say Hagen Doss in loop is, I think traditionally on shelf, about 10% of their assortment is non-dairy. In loop, it's 40% non-dairy. So you know, that's the type of nudging we can do, but only if we framed it in the right way to even begin with, or they wouldn't even be at the party
1: man this is a really tough play it's i see what you're saying and i, I could see it working and i like it's to me this oh, yeah. the big values of of growth and externalizing costs the opposite of externalizing costs i see is responsibility and i see that's a major play of what you're doing and the growth part is just so tough it is so tough and
0: it's a very delicate balance you know like you asked you mentioned criticism you know like loop has gotten huge unprecedented amounts of positive attention You know, what are the criticisms? The criticisms that have come up, you know, mostly from folks that are sort of very hardcore on the environmental side and awesome people are well, why are you working with these large producers? They have so many problems, you know, you name it. They have, you know, almost every problem out there. Um, And why don't you only work with
1: ethical, amazing producers? Oh, there, I totally disagree with that criticism. I I completely agree with you that the biggest Delta, you got to, I mean, yeah. that's right. I, I that's that's my play is the Delta. I want to maximize the Delta. Yeah. I want to work with the most. And if we don't, if we look, I support if they knew that they were going to harm something and they still acted on it, but they kept that secret and they broke the law. I'm a fan of, you know, responsible you know, equal justice all around. But yeah. if they succeeded in ways that we, they had no idea that the oceans would be choked with plastic or that, no one knew no. when the fossil fuel companies were born that we could, raise the temperature of the planet. That was inconceivable. And how can you blame nice. someone for succeeding at a business model based on that? But now we know what we know. And so our understanding exactly. of the world has changed. we got to change with the times and I want to help them. I'm 100% with you, you know, and like my, you know, you need,
0: I think in system change, the easiest way I've noticed to create system change is to focus the change into as narrow a laser point as possible where you have the credibility to be able to command the change. You know, we have that here at TerraCycle in waste, and I can go incredibly, talk to organizations. And so we even have been able to create a redesign principle in Loop where companies have to redesign all their products to fit our gate. And here's the rules, and you'll notice that all of them have to do with the idea of waste. Nothing to do with anything else where we wouldn't be able to command the expertise. So the rules are simply: if your your package must be multi-use or reusable, and then content. There's really three types of content. If the content can be recovered and is reasonable to reuse, let's say like the body of a pen, it must go to reuse. If the content is reasonable to recover but unreasonable to reuse, let's say like a uh, dirty diaper. It must go to recycling, which, mind you, is already a big upgrade. Uh, that's the first time in France diapers will be recyclable, will be, uh, be loop. But then, and here's the punchline to this whole conversation, on content, if the content is unrecoverable, like anything one consumes, like orange juice or ice cream or window cleaner, we have no point of view as long as the product is legal in the country. Because again, who are we to make an opinion on product? that's not our expertise. So let the law, which is the governing body of what should have an opinion, make the decision. And hopefully someone else who has a great laser focus on content can can help bring some system change to whatever that content may be.
1: I'm really glad to hear this comprehensive approach. I was troubled reading the book because the reduce wasn't there. And I see why you do that because you want to involve these players, you want to help them change. And if that message is in there, they have to be Finesse,d cajoled, uh, nudged, I guess, into was the word to use to to get yeah. there. I really hope that this is the beginning of multiple conversations, which I hope for the listeners we get to record because this kind of depth of, of it's not just analysis, but also action and also consideration. I don't think we're going to get it from the the places that really need it most, and so we have to get it to them. But
0: That's I think exactly right, and it needs external parties, you know, to to do that because they themselves. It's not their area of focus. And again, they're not the right players to make those decisions on those. You know, it's again, I always believe in sort of this idea of what are the primary motivators and the primary strengths of organizations. And then that's what they should really, that's what they're going to focus on, which is the primary motivator, which is always the most benign thing. You know, it's, um, you know, for a a, a retailer, it's sell more stuff, basically. It's that, you know, sort of simple. But also what is the core strength, right, of that type of uh, system as well. And these are, you know, the key things I think to align on. And then also to accept the rules and the way people behave or the way the system behaves as the starting point and not to get all down and bothered about, well, why aren't people better people? Why isn't the, you know, the, the system more conscious? Well, this is just the way the chess game is today and play within that. And then once you are able to play within that, you can also nudge the rules because the rules can't change into whatever direction you think is better.
1: Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuasbodak.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I hope that one of our future conversations, I get to share my strategy on working on leverage points of a system. If it's okay with you, I'll transition to what I mentioned yeah. before we started recording about uh, you're obviously, you care deeply, you've thought deeply, you're acting extensively uh, on environmental issues. What, what's driving all that? What, what does the environment mean to you? When you think about the environment, what do you think about?
0: You know, for me, I'll tell you how I came to this. Uh, the best way to answer that question is, you know, I, I was born in communism and live now in capitalism. And, uh, I, both those systems have positives and negatives, you know, uh, the West loves to vilify communism, but what are the positives, right? The positives are, you know, uh, a huge belief in, in, uh, you know, uh, education, healthcare, you know, really what people value is what's in your mind, you know, and how you express it, not your amount of stuff you own. But, the negatives are, you know, a lot of communist countries decide to make it almost, you know, impossible to leave. And it's you can't change the system. And that sort of makes it a little bit of a jail. And that is very, very challenging um, and huge negative. You know, if, you, if North Korea, you can't leave. You know, when I lived in the Iron Curtain or under it, you couldn't leave. And that's that's really not OK to, to take freedom away. On the capitalist side, capitalism is amazing. I think business is the most powerful tool for change. I think it's more powerful than war, politics and disease. But one thing it really lacks is a moral compass. Because the. I remember you know, going to university here in the US and econ 101, first class, first day, first lecture, the teacher comes up with the professor and says, what's the purpose of business? And the answer to the question was profit to shareholders. And I get it. I think profit's really important. I'm a diehard capitalist, but I don't think that's the purpose of business. I think that's more like an indicator of health. And if we make that the purpose of business, then suddenly the moral compass does not exist in that statement. And this is where I think combining sort of the benefits of both of these perspectives is really magical in in the sense of why should the archetype of a successful business person be make a ton of money doing whatever, even potentially things that are not so great, and then spend your your retirement uh, running an NGO or a philanthropy and giving it all away. That's a very strange thing. Why not... Do the benefit of both simultaneously, and I think business can be a force for good and be profitable simultaneously. And there's tremendous amount of examples of that, and that's what we should be teaching because it's an extra layer of thought. You know, you got to think about profit and purpose, not just profit. And but it's very doable. It's it's not rocket science. And you know, for me, environment was what I really gravitated to, to. uh, just because I have uh, you know, really fell in love with it when I lived in Canada. Um, I have a deep respect for it. I think environment is so important. All the answers are there. You know, it's just a passion. You know, it's, it's a love. It's you know, that sort of thing. And garbage for me, though, became the topic. Cause I think garbage is one of the most interesting, undiscovered, massive things in our lives. I mean, think about it this way. Everything you're looking at right now, wherever you are, will be garbage one day with no exception. And not only will it be garbage one day, with no exception, I mean, like everything, the floor, your clothing, the ceiling, the whatever is in your frame of view that is a physical object and not natural, will be waste. But not only will it be waste one day, and actually much sooner than you probably think, you know, 99% of everything becomes waste in a year, you will have paid the garbage industry to take it. And isn't that amazing that it's the only industry in the world that will one day possess everything, literally? <laughs> And yet for how sort of cool that is, imagine one day you will own it all, (laughs) just be a garbage person for how unsophisticated the solutions are and for how undesired being involved in the industry is. It's a little, you know, unbalanced, which is also a great opportunity to come in and
1: innovate. So a lot of what you said was uh, like the views on communism, capitalism, the education on Econ 101. It seemed to be the frame that you view what to do on the environment now, if I'm not oversimplifying, I probably am. And to get to the environment, I guess it, it felt like waste seems intriguing to you and it's something that you want to understand and it's also something that it has properties that most people don't expect if everything ends up there one day. It sounds kind of Buddhist.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, for, for me it's just and it's also an area which is you know there's a, there's so many topics and you have to be focused you know you can't do on everything so is it global warming is it animal welfare is there so many topics i just you know this is the one that i gravitated to because it intersects you know love of environment and a really there's so many interesting economic upside down theories in it like I, i'll give you an example when whenever anyone studies econ uh, or economics It usually always begins with understanding the relationship between supply and demand, and you draw these supply and demand curves all day long. Sort of, you know, the simple relationship being: hey, if supply goes up of a topic, you know, the price goes down because there's more volume. If demand goes up, you know, price goes up, and the relationship between supply and. demand. But here's what's sort of weird, okay? As you start thinking about garbage, if you look at the way supply and demand curves are plotted in economics textbooks, they're always plotted in the positive quadrant. In other words, there's always a price. That is greater than zero. But garbage, if you had to plot it on a supply and demand curve, well, you know, let's walk it through, it has tremendous supply, but it has negative demand. In other words, what makes something even legally garbage by law is if you're willing to pay someone to take it. So it would actually be plotted in an area of the supply and demand curve that's not even pictured in textbooks. And it's these sort of things, and there's tons of these examples in ways that it's like breaks the rules and yet people are not eyes open to it. It's super strange.
1: It's totally fascinating. Yeah. I'm, I'm like picturing as you're doing it. You know, I have to, after we hang up, I have to get out some paper and draw this out because yeah, it didn't occur to me that. And there all, are all these things in that, that people yeah. don't notice.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is the key, right? Like uh, it's an upside down economic principle in so many ways. And it just, it's something worth exploration because there is a, a lot of business opportunity, a lot of opportunity to be very purposeful. And isn't it great when you can walk in and you spend your day, you know, to, uh, uh, like your paycheck comes from the act of doing something that hopefully the planet and or people will thank you for, you know, I mean, you know, someone asked me earlier, you know, later, like, you know, how do I want to sort of reflect on the past and what's the goal for me? It's not about, you know, fame or fortune. It's about, I'd love to look back when it's all over, you know. And I sort of, you know, tally up, you know, what I did on the planet and the planet says, thank you for walking, you know, on my surface. Not that you did nothing, like net neutral. And it's not that I left nothing
1: behind, that you leave a positive behind. Yeah. I, I really appreciate this perspective. And now I want to ask, given this, some of the values that you've expressed about the environment and waste and things like that, and the, where you want to leave things when, when it's all said and done, I invite you, and as I do with most of my guests, to pick something to act on that value that you're not already doing, if, you, if we can come up with something. And I put a couple constraints on that it doesn't have to fix all the world's problems and you don't have to do that all by yourself overnight. The magnitude is not the issue. It can't be something you're already doing and it can't be something telling other people what to do. We got enough of that already. Yeah. And something with a measurable difference because a lot of people talk about education and awareness, but something that is physically measurable that, or that will make a physically measurable result. Yeah, it's a good question. And then if we come up with something, I would invite you to share how it went on a second episode. Okay.
0: All right. Well, I think I have an idea. So, you know, 10 years ago, I became a vegetarian entirely. And, you know, my wife did as well. I mean, she's been for longer. For her, it was from a a love of animals and the welfare of animals point of view. For me, it came basically from the environmental side um, after I really discovered how destructive, you know, the animal industry is on the planet. And so... But I've been really, you know, uh, I'm not vegan. You know, I, I uh, still enjoy cheese and, uh, you know, an egg every once in a while. And so my commitment would be to take it one step further and go from being vegetarian uh, to vegan. And I definitely would love to check in with you to see how it goes, because, uh, you know, navigating that for me is the key key question.
1: I should specify that usually I mean it could be an experiment, like time based, but you might have just implied permanent, but. Um, sure. I mean, a change, if it's good, should be fast and permanent. You know, the question is, can you do it? So how long do you think it'll take before it kind of fits in? You well, can tell? I mean,
0: I will try it right away. The question is, if I, how, how well can I maintain it? How well can I, you know, maintain
1: the behavior? Yeah, that's something I say that people, I, I usually say, a lot of people, when they say the commitment, they're like, ah, oh, nothing will stop me from this. And I point out, you know, usually it's, there's two big things that affect it many things, but other people and travel tend to be the ones that where, you know, you decide something and then like mom makes you something that I guess you're vegetarian. So she might make you something like, you know, yeah. oh, oh my God, my mom. Yeah. I'll say it. Uh, one time I was like, she was going to make me some risotto. And I was like, all right, I don't want any cheese in there. And you know, I, I do eat some cheese also. I've very similar to what you just said. And she's like, Oh God, I'll make it without cheese. I figured out how to do it. And I was like, okay, oh, great. Okay, great. She doesn't tell me she stuck a whole stick of butter in there. <laughs> oh, she still. She was honest though,
0: and did it right. You see, this is this is actually echoes what we just said earlier. You know, uh, earlier in our discussion is good, really good. She didn't. She didn't lie. She didn't put some other thing. You know what I mean? She was perfectly good intention to make the risotto the way you wanted, and with good intention, still didn't actually do any net positive.
1: Yeah, and actually, it, it strains the relationship because now I have to check everything, and she thinks I'm checking for reasons. You know, it's it sets up a funny relationship. Yeah, but anyway, going back to you with you know, um, what you
0: got to do is you got to just convince her to be vegan, understand why, show her whatever it takes to to do it, and then you don't have to worry
1: at all about you know difference between cheese and butter. She tends to lag about six months behind my changes. Like when I said no hydrogenated oils a long time ago. She was like really angry because her pies, which have these amazing flaky crusts, she's like, that's how it works. It's either that or lard. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to have either. And then a while later, she figured out how to do it. There you go. Well, she gets there. So in any case, for your situation, you're going to, I presume you've had, you, this is probably something you already know, but there are going to be times when you are, you know, you're sticking with it, but then someone doesn't, you're with other people and they don't know. And they ask you, hey, I've had this, or you're traveling and it's things aren't as under your control and the, the, the issue is not how do i solve everything how do i prepare for everything ahead of time because you can't as far as i can tell that's right. it's how do you handle it when challenges come up you know yeah so do you know the assemblage in new york the co-working space i don't so they're i mean they're not we work they're like smaller but they're more purpose driven and they've been emailing me to ask if i could do an an episode in their space and for something near Earth Day, and I wonder if a second conversation around Earth Day in April—it it feels like for the timing sure. might, might work out.
0: Yeah, but, for sure. And I think uh, just my, my schedule is, is 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 one ridiculous mess. So the best is if uh, whoever helped set this discussion up uh, talk to them sooner than later, and they can get you in. And yeah, would love to. I mean, as long as the schedule allows, it would love it.
1: Okay, great. So I and I really hope that could be a longer one because I know your time is tight now.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I'd love to. I'd love to. The later, the further you book out, and the more non business hours you choose, the more length uh, my uh, admin team can give.
1: Okay, cool. Because they tend to like to do things after work, like 6, 7 p.m.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little later, is a little bit easier for me, and then I can be a bit more expansive. Or, you know, I mean, my day started at four, so the early is probably not the easiest, but later is sometimes easier, you know, uh, something like that. Or if it's, uh, yeah, uh, something like that would be the easiest by far.
1: Okay. And so I look forward to hearing that. I look forward to picking up where we left off because to me, I feel like there's hundreds of threads open. And I haven't gotten to talk in this level of depth to someone who has considered these things at this level of depth before. And uh, it's very refreshing.
0: Oh, well, it, it's, it's actually quite nice to talk to you as well. Because usually when I talk to, you know, uh, do interviews, it's very similar, the themes. So it's a little repetitive. So this is actually quite nice to go into a different direction.
1: And I usually wrap up by, with two questions. One is, is there anything I didn't think to ask? But I feel like there's a million. Yeah.
0: And I think let's, let's you know, continue the discussion, right?
1: Yeah. Any, any last message you want to give to the listeners before
0: we wrap up? Yeah. I'll, I'll leave one message, which has to go with this, you know, and it echoes the message that uh, we talked about around uh, reduce.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. So we talked about
0: reduce. What, well, what is that message? I think that my most important message to listeners out there is that many times as individuals, we feel powerless and we also sort of point the blame at large corporations or corporations in general, you know, retailers and manufacturers for basically making us do things, you know, and that's the problem. But think about this: you know, we get very hung up every four years on, in the United States, on who we vote for, and we're voting without money, like we're voting with a you know pencil and a piece of paper. And we're really voting between a coin toss, a, a you know side A or side B. So it's a binary vote once every four years. And we get very hung up on a huge amount of, you know, energy and media discussion go into it. Yet, this is the crazy part. We vote every day, multiple times a day with actual money on the future we want with what we buy. And really remember, these corporations are not here to sell you what you don't want. They're here to figure out what you want and give it to you as cheaply and conveniently and as beautifully and as exciting as a way as possible. And even... The act of not buying is an active vote. And just think about that next time you shop, uh, because what you buy is really what more of the future will look like. I, w- I can't add to that.
1: Tom Saki, thank you very much.
0: Amazing. Great to chat with you, too. Okay. I look forward, hopefully, to see you in April in person. I look forward to it as well. Have a great day. You as well. Ciao. Bye-bye.
1: I hope this conversation is the first of many, not just to hear about his personal challenge, which is pretty big, at least to me. I happen to still eat cheese, I guess about one pizza slice, the amount would would be on one pizza slice per year. So that's been decreasing every year. So I might use his action as an inspiration to drop that last bit. Anyway, I'm glad he got and explained the reasons why reduction didn't show up in his book and explained why his book didn't touch it. I've heard enough to believe that he understands and gets and is acting on the most important directions and changes for the environment. I haven't yet heard enough about the details of TerraCycle and Loop. We just didn't get to talk that long to tell for myself if I think that they'll work. But it's refreshing to talk to someone who understands the key issues, is acting on them, and doesn't push them aside or say, oh, it's still working anyway. He's facing them head on, and I'm looking forward to how things work out for Loop and himself and also our future conversations. Did you feel inspired too Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating, others should act first or making excuses, to the empowering, I can make a difference. And living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuasbodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.